I'm not usually the morning guy. I, I do appreciate the fact that they threw me uh, that bone because to make it through everything that we're talking about in the tabernacle, uh, it, it, it does uh, require just a minute if we're going to uh, be able to actually get there. It, I was thinking this morning as I was entering into the gates, I was just wondering how many of y'all were, were there with me. Hello? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I hope that, uh, that it got enough on your radar where however you did it, man, I just hope that you had a morning of just, if nothing else, just giving thanks and praise to the Lord. And uh, so uh, last night we, we began this journey of entering into the Lord's presence. And of course, as I just mentioned, we talked about coming into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And as soon as we make our entrance into that gate, do you remember that first thing that's there? We hear the, the, the fire crackling. We feel the heat on our face. The smoke is in our eyes because the, the brazen altar is there. And as soon as we see that, it reminds us of the sacrifice that has allowed us this access into God's presence. And of course, that access, as we saw last night in a lot of different ways, was provided for us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb who was laid out as a burnt offering for us, and yet reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that has made this possible, we're also recognizing the fact that he has called us to sacrifice as well. The scripture says that now that we have had the sacrifice of Christ atoned for us, that now we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now we are to yield our members to death, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in us and, and through us. Okay, so now this morning, we're, we're moving to the next part that's just a little bit deeper into the court, and this is the place of the brazen laver, the brazen laver, and, and whereas the gate was the place of thanksgiving and praising, whereas the brazen altar was the place of yielding and presenting, this is the place of washing and cleansing. And, and this is a very significant place, y'all. And I, I, I want to just beg you as we begin to get into this to open your heart to what God intends for us at the brazen labor. You know, I, I, again, I think sometimes in the morning it's a little more subdued and, you know, th this is a time right now, y'all, for 
for us to really come to grips with some of the teaching of Scripture about our walk with the Lord. But this brazen labor is, uh, maybe the way to describe it is it's a pretty fancy schmancy water basin. Okay, But at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's a water basin, but uh, it would have been quite expensive uh, to make this, this thing. Uh, you can, I think, see it in the, the background on the slides there. It, it, it was the, did you guys get an image of that before? Okay, there, there we go. Look, something like that. And, and so as the priest would come into the tabernacle, into the presence of the Lord, they were required to come to the brazen laver to wash their hands and their feet. And it was a ceremonial cleansing and a ceremonial purifying and sanctifying of themselves because right after they come to the brazen laver, where this curtain right here is, this is the entrance into the holy place. Now, that is the tabernacle proper. Okay, we call the whole thing the tabernacle, but the tabernacle proper actually begins with the holy place. And before he goes into the holy place, he's got to have clean hands and a, and a pure heart. And so this is the place for that. And of course, as we are using this as a template for prayer, as we come to the labor, we're reminded, listen now, that though our sin was cleansed, at the brazen altar. And we saw last night that that brazen altar was representative of the cross and it was representative of our salvation and of Christ's sacrifice. And yet, as we all know, though our sins were paid for at the brazen altar... There are still sins that we deal with on this side of salvation. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Any of you guys struggle with sin after you got saved? Okay, well, if you don't, then you ought to come up here and, and teach this. But, but listen, positionally... When we came to the cross of Christ for salvation, our sins were forgiven. Praise God. Every stinking last one of them. All of our sins past, present, and the sins that we haven't committed yet. When we received Christ, all of our sins were atoned for. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And again, it's, it's an atonement and it's redemption for all of the sins that we've committed, are committing, or will ever commit. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14, you can see it basically repeats that same thing that Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 was talking about. And, and listen, what these verses are talking about, it is 
absolutely beautiful. It is wonderful. It's certainly worthy of our praise and our rejoicing from a positional standpoint. And yet, from a practical standpoint, and I want you to listen to this, from a practical standpoint, y'all, the fact is a lot of our sins from the past that we talked about last night, sins that we committed before we were saved that were actually what it was that nailed the Lord to the cross. For a good number of us, those sins have become the sins that we go back to and commit against the Lord in the present as saved people. And if we're not actually committing them in the present, as a lot of you know, dang, we'd sure like to. But being a Christian and all, and we've got sins we're committing or sins that whew, we sure would like to. And I mean, can you, can you fathom that, y'all? On one hand, re rejoicing and thanking and praising him for dying for our sins. And yet on the other hand, finding ourselves in a dogfight to not go back and commit. Would you listen to this now? The very sins that killed Christ. And the very sins that Satan in our lost state was using to hold us captive at his will. Which means we're still committing and desiring to commit the sins that almost sent every last one of us to hell. And listen, y'all. The laver is the place where all of that gets sorted out. And it needs to be sorted out. Amen? This is a big issue, y'all. We're talking here about personal holiness. And the labor is the place where all of that gets reckoned. Because spiritually... The cleansing at the laver, what it does is it brings us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, and we hear the Holy Spirit of God saying through the Apostle Paul, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us get to that laver and cleanse ourselves. Of all, wait, 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 how much? All filthiness of the, the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I, I love 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But when it comes to cleansing, I, could I encourage you? 
Yeah, man. Keep digging 1 John 1, 9. But get yourself to 2 Corinthians 7, 1. And cleanse yourself of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. The, the labor brings us back to 2 Corinthians 7, 1, but it also brings us back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. And, and it's here that we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to sanctify us and, and cleanse us. Listen, not with his blood. That's what he did at, at the brazen altar. We received that once for all cleansing for sin at the brazen altar. And that's where that was reckoned. But the laver is here to remind us that we need to allow him to sanctify us and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word. And again, I, I love the fact that we don't have to go to that physical labor. We go to the word of God. We go to the Lord Jesus Christ for the washing by the water of the word. And, and so what happens at the labor is we begin to apply the word of God to whatever sins it is that as we're coming into his presence, whatever sins it is that the Holy Spirit of God is bringing to our remembrance and is reproving us of. And so we, we seek to allow the word of God to help us, again, to perfect holiness. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, we've got to get to the point, y'all, at that labor where we see our sin the way that God sees it. We see our sin the way that God sees it, or God sees them, our sins. And listen, rather than, like we were talking about a minute ago, rather than our sins being an allurement to us or a provocation within us or an enticement, we, we see them. As Proverbs 14 and verse 34 says that God does, we see them as a reproach. We see them as Proverbs 6.16 says, as God does, that he hates it and that it is an abomination to him. We see our sin as 1 John 2.11 says that God sees it. We see it as darkness. We see our sin as 1 John 5.17 says. We see it as unrighteousness. We see our sin the way that God does and the way that he reveals it to us in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20 it is very grievous. So we see our sin the way that God sees it. And then secondly, we come to the labor and it helps us to say about our sin what God says about it. First of all, 
to, to see our sin the way that God sees it, but now to say about our sin what God says about it. And of course, to be able to do that, you know what we've got to do? We've got to get ourselves into the water of the word to see what God actually says about the particular sin or the particular sins that we're dealing with. Now, listen, y'all, I am convinced that one of the reasons we have such a difficulty dealing with our sin and overcoming our sin is, first of all, we don't see it the way that God sees it, and we don't say about our sin what God says about it. So let me give you an example or two of what what I'm talking about. One of the sins that as we... As we look into the water of the labor, that is a mirror that allows us to see ourselves the way that God sees us. For maybe a lot of us that are in this room, um, man, we, we look into that labor, we look into the Word, and, and we see that we have a major problem with the sin of lust. Okay, we looked at 2 Corinthians 7.1 just a minute ago. Okay, lust is a part of the filthiness of the spirit. There's a spirit of lust on the inside of me. But now when I act on that lust, it becomes the next thing that he's talking about. It becomes the filthiness of the flesh. Are you tracking with that? Okay, but now listen, when the water of the word gets applied to lust, what begins to happen is I'm going to begin to see this the way that God sees it, and I'm going to begin to say about it what God says about it. And so as I'm talking to God about this, having gone to the water of the word to see what he has to say and what he calls it, I find myself in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28 where Jesus said, But I say unto you, whosoever shall lust upon a woman hath committed the heinous sin of lust. Is that what he says? No. What what does God say about the sin of lust? It is what, y'all? It's adultery. That's what God says about it. In, as Paul talked about it in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, he, in this verse he's talking about the whole process of sexual sin, and he works it from the fruit, which is fornication, and he brings it all the way back to the root, which is lust, but in this verse what he calls it is covetousness. It's the sin of wanting more. Okay? That's, it's lust, it's, it's covetousness, which he says, it isn't like, but it is what? Idolatry. So, you see, if I can come before the Lord and, and I say what, what I've said 5,000 times before, Lord, you know that... I got that problem with lust. 
okay. But I will tell you, yo, it's a whole different animal than me coming and saying, Lord, I get it. I am an adulterer. Lord, I get it. I am an idolater. Whoa. Do you see what I'm saying? Just calling it what God calls it changes the necessity and the urgency of being washed and cleansed of that thing. We could do the same thing with worry. I don't even think that most people even see that as sin. But if we're just going to call it that, and Lord, you, man, you know that I've got this, this here problem with worry. It's a whole different animal than saying what God says about it. Because if I'm going to see it the way that God sees it, and I'm going to say about it what God has to say about it, then I'm going to say, Lord, I have a, I have a problem believing what you say. If one of your friends came up to you and said, you know, I have a problem believing what you say, would you be appalled by that? But that's what worry is. It's us saying to God, God, I don't believe you're trustworthy. I don't believe that I can trust you in my circumstances. Or, Lord... I don't have faith in your word because your word tells me that nothing is going to, in my life, nothing is going to take you by surprise and nothing that happens to me is going to happen unless you either allow it or appoint it. But in either case, you tell me that because of my love for you, what you're going to do is you're going to take the circumstances in my life and mix them together with all the other circumstances of my, my, my life so you can work those together for my good and for your glory. And so do you see what I'm talking about? If we can get to that labor and we can allow the word of God to do what Ephesians 5.26 is talking about, washing ourselves with the water of the word. And that brings us to a third thing that the labor jolts our minds to do. And that is to do with our sin what God says to do with it. Okay, so we're going to Come to the labor to see our sin the way that God sees it, to say about our sin what God says about it, and to do with our sin what God says to do with it. And he tells us quite a bit about what he wants us to do with that sin in our life. As we've already talked about, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says to cleanse ourselves of it. Colossians 3 verses 8 and 9 says to put it off. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 says to no longer continue in it. Romans chapter 6 and verse 2 and chapter 6 and verse 11 says that we are to die to it. 
Romans 6.12 says to no longer allow it to reign. As Romans 6.13 talks about, to no longer yield ourselves to it. As Romans 6.16 and and verse 20 says, to no longer serve it. As Romans 8.2 says, to apply the law of the spirit of life in Christ to free us from it. In 2 Corinthians 15, verse 34, to awake to righteousness so we sin not. And as 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12 says, to accept his forgiveness. That's what God says that we're to do with it. And so by coming to the labor, what happens to us, y'all, is we begin to get as serious about our sin as God is. I'm convinced in Laodicea, we aren't. We've got our little positional standing as holy, and I'm good with that. But the judgment seat of Christ, I'm afraid, is going to reveal to us that our reward is determined not on our position, but on our practice. The Bible tells us to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, I'm not done with the message. Okay, we're going to two other locations. But I do want us right here to just pause for just a minute. And I want us to try to get to the labor right now. Before we move on to something else and, oh yeah, this is serious, y'all. I'd like to ask the musicians to come out. I'd like to ask you to just stay seated. You can sing. You can pray. But let's allow this to be a time where we're not waiting till we get home and if this comes back into our memory, but we're going to deal with it as God is dealing with us about it. Why does 
come through the gates and entered into the court, we're met with the brazen altar and then to the brazen laver. And then the next place that we enter is the holy place. And as you can see, all of these places where we've already been has prepped us to now enter into this incredible place, as I've said uh, several times. This is now the 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 temp or the tabernacle proper. This is what God refers to as the, the tabernacle itself, the holy place. And so as we as we enter this curtain, 
where the holy place is, and as that curtain falls back behind us, our, our, as we get back there, immediately our eyes are drawn to a light that is over on the left side of the room. In, in that tabernacle, it would have been on the south side. And, and the, the, our light, or our, our eyes are drawn to the golden candlestick. And, and as far as our prayers are concerned, whereas... The gate was the place of thanksgiving and praising. And then the golden altar, or the brazen altar, was the place of yielding and presenting. And the brazen laver was the place of washing and cleansing. This is now the place where we come before the Lord, and it's a place of emptying and filling, a place of emptying and filling. And I understand right now that doesn't mean jack to you. Hopefully it will as we begin to go a little deeper in, into it. But as, as we, in our prayers, as we make our way over to the candlestick, we're reminded in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, as, as John takes a second to describe what he was seeing in the true tabernacle in heaven. Okay, that's what was happening in Revelation chapter 1. He's seeing the true tabernacle in heaven. And, and listen, he talks about the seven spirits which are before the throne. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, John describes them as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which, listen to this, which are the seven spirits of God. You say, hold up, man. Seven spirits of God. What you talking about? I mean, doesn't Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 tell us in no uncertain terms that there is one spirit, the one that we refer to as the Holy Spirit? And obviously that's true. But though there is one Holy Spirit, what we find out biblically is that there are actually seven spirits that all come together to make the one spirit so holy. Hello? You got that? And the golden candlestick is a picture of that. The end of verse 36 here in Exodus 25 where it talks about the candlestick. What it says is, all, as in the whole thing, shall be one beaten work of pure gold. So check this out. The, the golden candlestick is all one piece but it has seven branches. And of course, this is picturing the sevenfold manifestations of the one Holy Spirit of God. And of course, those seven manifestations of those seven spirits of the one Holy Spirit are identified for us in an Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where it lists them as the Spirit of of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear 
of the Lord. Okay, so obviously, we recognize as we approach the candlestick in prayer, we understand that this is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And we are here in prayer, first and foremost, to receive what we might could call the permeation of the Holy Spirit. Because the candlestick becomes the the place in prayer where, where we come before the Spirit of God and we seek to empty ourselves of ourselves so we might, as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 admonishes us, so that we can be filled with the Spirit. And so we're coming before the Spirit of God on a daily basis to empty ourselves so we can be filled with the Spirit. Listen, because only by being filled with the Spirit are we able to be obedient to the command of Galatians 5.16 to walk in the Spirit. Ain't nobody walking in the Spirit today that ain't filled with the Spirit. And it's only by walking in the Spirit that we're able, as Galatians 5.23 and 24 go on to say, to manifest through our lives the fruit of the Spirit. And oh my, (laughs) y'all... I can't emphasize enough the importance of this aspect of prayer on a daily basis. Because do you understand the whole Christian life is actually wrapped up in what happens at the candlestick. Because on a daily basis, y'all, we all get Two options, that's it. I'm going to go through my day today, and I'm either going to be filled with the Spirit, or I am going to be filled with self. In other words, we on a daily basis are either going to walk in the Spirit, or we're going to walk in the flesh, We're either going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or we're going to manifest the, and that was Galatians 5, 23 and 24, or we're going to manifest the works of the flesh, which Galatians chapter 5 and verses 19, 21 identify as, okay, so it's either love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and a whole bunch of other sinful behaviors. I love the way that he says this, that fall into this category of, and such like. A lot of other junk like that. And as we just read that list together, I I don't know if you caught it, I was going just a little bit fast on that. But a lot of us were looking at the list of the works of the flesh and going, oh man, yeah, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do some business, man. When, when I get home from, that, from this old church retreat, man, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to work 
on stopping doing some of the things I'm doing. Man, that fornication. Man, that uncleanness. Or that, that hatred that I've been dealing with. That, that wrath that I've been feeling in my heart toward people. Or the envyings that have crept into my life. And, and listen, y'all. Some of us are convinced that we need to go home and work like crazy to stop it. And I want to say to you that that might just well be the absolute worst thing that you could possibly do. Because listen, those things already have enough attention in our life. They don't need any more attention. And focusing on those things is not the answer. The answer to stopping those things isn't working on them. It isn't working at it. It isn't trying to stifle them or uh, suppress them. The answer is to be filled with the Spirit so that you're walking in the Spirit because as Galatians 5.16 says, look at this, Galatians 5.16, have, have, have I lost you? Is that there? Okay, evidently it's not there. Would you listen to it? This is key. Walk in the Spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The answer to the flesh is never the flesh trying to work like crazy to stop all this crap in my life. The answer is at the candlestick. Empty ourselves of ourselves so we can be filled with the Spirit, so we can walk in the Spirit, so we can manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, and as we're at the golden candlestick, so first of all, we're here for the permeation of the Spirit, for Him to fill us. But the second thing we're here for is for the illumination of the Spirit. Because when we... When we move from the candlestick and we go to the other side of the holy place, do you know where we'll be? We're going to be at the table of showbread. And what we're going to see in just a minute is it's a picture of the Word of God. And I think it's important for us to realize that before coming to the Word of God, that we get in our minds what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is trying to tell us in 1 Corinthians 2, it likens the word of God to the wisdom of God. And what 1 Corinthians 2, 9 tells us is that when it comes to the wisdom of God that is revealed in this book, our human eyes can't see it. Our human ears can't hear it. Our human hearts can't process it. It ain't getting in there. Verse 10 says, it has to be revealed to us. And then listen to what verse 13 tells us. We receive the revelation of the Spirit by the light or the illumination 
of the Spirit. And that's why Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, listen, that the eyes of our understanding would be, what? Enlightened. It's the job of the, the Holy Spirit. It's why David prayed in Psalm 119 in verse 18, Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And I know I, you've got to shine the light of the Spirit of God on your word or I'll never see them. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 16 and verse 13, how be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, because in order to understand the word of God, we're completely dependent upon the illumination that comes from the Spirit of God. And so having secured the permeation of the Spirit, and we're filled with the Spirit, and having received the illumination of the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit to the other side of the holy place where is the table of showbread. The table of showbread. And this is the place for us in prayer. It is the place of nourishing and equipping and by the very title that God uses to refer to this table, whereas the other side of the holy place was characterized by light, on this side of the room, it's characterized by bread. And bread, of course, in the Bible is a picture or is representative of the word of God. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 4, Jesus said, Men, man shall not live by bread alone, physical bread, but he's talking about we must live by the bread that is found in every word of God. And I want you to just notice with me a couple of quick details about the table of showbread. If we are Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 and 24, let us know that that table was made of shittim wood. It was a kind of wood that was hard. Uh, it wouldn't allow insects to be able to get into that thing. But having been made of that wood, it was then overlaid with absolute pure gold. Leviticus 24 and verse 5 lets us know that there were to be 12 cakes or, or 12 loaves, we would probably say today, on that table. And, and obviously, historically, it's a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, but I want you to take note of the fact that the bread on that table is sitting on pure gold. Just file that for a second. And Exodus 40 and verse 23 lets us know that God had a specific way that he wanted that bread to be arranged on the table. Listen, as you begin to work through the tabernacle, the detail is crazy. 
And it's all there for a reason. Now, in the picture of this that you can see in the background on the slide, it's got those loaves or those cakes. It's got them stacked. But what the Bible actually says in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 23, I couldn't find a cool picture that had them laid out the way the Bible says. But rather than being in two stacks of six, what they actually were, where they were in two rows of six on the top of that table, okay? And then Leviticus, uh, or Exodus chapter 25 and verse 30 and Numbers chapter 7, it again identifies this table as the table of showbread. And by its very title, it's obvious that there was something, listen, about this bread on this table that God wanted to show us. And so what is it that he was wanting to show us? Okay, well, as we've already noticed, the bread is a picture or a representation of the Word of God. And the fact that it is presented on pure gold. Do you know what gold in the Bible represents? The gold represents deity. And what it reveals to us is that the word of God didn't come by man. It came of divine origin. It came from none other than God himself. And the reason that he wanted it laid out on that table according to his specific design is he wanted it two rows of six because this book is comprised of 66 books. And so God made sure that those priests laid out on that table that which pictures the daily bread that Jesus said that we must live by. And, and listen, we couldn't possibly miss, we couldn't come to that table and miss the connection of the Word of God being comprised of 66 books. And so as we're coming into the presence of the Lord and we get to the table of showbread, this is the time in our praying where we prepare ourselves to consume the word of God. Leviticus chapter 24 verses 8 and 9 let us know that, that Old Test the Old Testament priests, what would happen is they would eat the bread off of the table of showbread every Sabbath and then it would be replaced with fresh bread, symbolizing of course the fact that God intends for us as New Testament priests to be nourished, to be strengthened by the daily consumption of the Word of God. When Jesus taught on, on prayer, remember what he said? Give us this day our daily bread. And so we come to the table and the prayer of our heart is that we might approach the word of God as Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. And we're saying to the Lord, Lord, may I find myself in your word today. And as I read your very words, I'm asking you, Lord, to feed me.
And Lord, may I eat them. And may your words truly be the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And we come to the table with the statement that Job made in Job 23 and verse 12 as the prayer of our hearts being, O Lord, may I come today and be completely surrendered to every single thing that you have commanded in your word. And O Lord, may I like Job May I attach more value and find more satisfaction from your spiritual food than I do my physical food. And we come to the table with Paul's words of instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 says the prayer of our hearts. And we're praying, oh Lord, may I be nourished May I be nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine today. Lord, nourish me in your word with the words of faith and equip me with good doctrine that comes from your word. There's one more place in the holy place, and we'll get to that tonight, and then after going to that place, we will enter into the most incredible place, the holy of holies. And Lord, I I pray that you'll take your word and do with it what only you can do, and I, I pray, Lord, that as a result of the time that we're spending in in your word, that we'll go home transformed in our prayer life, seeking a deeper relationship with you than we have ever had in our entire lives. And we ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you tonight.